Standing out of confidence for God's perfect and holy word, and you can grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 9. If you don't happen to have a Bible, it will be useful to have one open and in front of you as we study God's word together this morning. So you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and turn to page 868 as we want to conclude chapter 9 of Luke's gospel this morning by looking at verses 51 through 62. And this section, this text in Luke's gospel in every way represents a major turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And as I read the text in a, just a second, maybe you can see if you can spot what is in fact this great turning point in Jesus' ministry on earth. And then once I have read the text, uh, let us once again bow in prayer as we ask for God's blessing on our study and then we'll begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, Jesus said, Follow me. But he said, Lord... Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? Let's pray once again. Father, we do bow before you now asking that you would do us good through your word. That you would send your spirit that we might know the truth of this text. That we might behold your son, Jesus Christ, in it in the fullness of his glory and in the fullness of his beauty. So help us to hear with minds and hearts ready to be stirred by the spirit's power. Help me to preach as I ought, boldly and clearly, as a dying man unto dying people. Never promise to preach another sermon, and let us hear as those who are never promised to hear another sermon. So let us hear diligently that you might bring us life in Jesus Christ, and we pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the great Welsh evangelists of the 17th century was a man named John Elias. He was used by God to convert many people to faith in Jesus Christ. And as many traveling evangelists are wont to do, he had a few select stories and illustrations that he often would use in his evangelistic preaching. And one of his most well-known stories was about his blacksmith's dog. And he recalled a time when the blacksmith had taken a new dog into its smithy shop, and Elias had passed by, and he heard the blacksmith's hammer 
uh, hammering away on the anvil as it was molding a horseshoe, and he could hear down the street the dog boking, barking uh, ferociously and constantly, but as days and weeks passed by, the barking became less frequent. It became even more quiet until one day John Elias walked by the shop and didn't hear any barking at all. And he looked into the smithy and sure enough the blacksmith was hammering away as usual upon the anvil and the dog was asleep by the fire. And the reason I tell you that is because Jeremiah 23 tells us the Lord speaking through Jeremiah is not my word like a hammer that breaks rock into pieces. And if you've been with us as we've studied Luke's gospel, perhaps you've noticed that in the mouth of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Lord is indeed like a hammer. As Jesus goes about teaching and preaching and ministering the truth, what he's often found doing is breaking through hard hearts. He's using his word to mold, to shape, and make his people after his own image. So anytime we come to a text of Scripture, especially like our text this morning when once again Jesus is uniquely going to lift the hammer to do some hard work about the radical demands of discipleship, we need to grant that for many of us, having grown up in somewhat of a Christian culture, danger does lurk in the shadows this morning. Because perhaps you can recall a time in which the preaching of God's Word, the declaration of Jesus Christ, was something like a hammer. With force, with power, The Spirit presented the Savior to you. But as years have gone by, the hammer blows of God's Word have become less powerful, less pronounced. And even you might know that the great enemy of God's people throughout the ages, Satan, stands at the ready this morning to press the mute button on our study of this text that you might slumber into sleep rather than hear these demands of Jesus Christ to trust in Him and follow Him in the fullness of devotion. And so we want to pray as we come once again to a passage full of hard sayings from Jesus that we do indeed hear them as we ought. Because, as I said earlier, this text does represent a crossroads in Jesus' ministry. If you flip back to chapter 4, verse 14, what you would find is from that point up until our passage today, Jesus has been ministering in the region of Galilee. So for a little over five chapters, Jesus has located his ministry there in his earthly work under the Father's decree, teaching, preaching, healing, exercising demons in and around Galilee. But from verse 51 of chapter 9, all the way to the middle of chapter 19, Jesus is now going to slowly journey towards Jerusalem. So it's a little over ten chapters of a journey towards Jerusalem, that represents the final days of Jesus. So students, what you need to know is we look at these next 10 chapters over the coming weeks, two things are of utmost importance as you think about launching out into the study of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. The first of which is pretty much any content that's in Luke's gospel that you'll only find in Luke's gospel is found in the next 10 chapters. Because up until this point, the first nine chapters, Luke has largely been following Mark's gospel. And the second thing to notice is we are rapidly, much more quickly than it can seem as you read the remainder of Luke's gospel, marching towards the cross of Calvary. Because we're probably no longer than 12 months away at this stage in Luke's gospel from Jesus being hung on a tree. Even more likely, we're probably only about six months away from Jesus being crucified there at Golgotha. 
So it's a text that's before us this morning that talks about the resolve of Jesus Christ. Now, kids, I wonder if you know what resolve means. It means to forcefully fix yourself on a course of action. And what we're going to see in the first part of our text is Jesus' resolve. And then in the second part of the text, the resolution that he requires for many who would come after him. And so when you combine the text together, as we weave our way through our short number of verses today, we're going to see a simple theme emerge from the two scenes. And it's the truth that the way of Christ demands sacrifice. The way of Christ demands sacrifice. And to help us see that, we're first going to notice the road that Jesus follows. And then secondly, the requirements for Jesus' followers. So the road comes to us in verse 51 through 56, and the requirements come in verse 57 through 62. So first, let's notice the road that Jesus follows. Look again at verse 51. Luke says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, more literally, that's to be ascended. So his ascension here is in primary view. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. You, know, you might be in here this morning and you're not a Christian, but you might have Christian friends. And maybe you've been around them long enough to hear one of them talk about God's purpose for their life. You know, desiring to fulfill what God has designed and destined for them to be. And what you see here, once again in Luke's gospel, is God's ultimate purpose for Jesus Christ. In verse 51, his purpose is to go to Jerusalem, where he is going to die. His purpose is to go to Jerusalem, to be trodden down that he might trod down death. His purpose is to go to Jerusalem, that he might be slain in order that he can slay sin's penalty once and for all. So what you need to think from this point forward, what we have ever before Jesus' mind, is he's got a destiny date with death. And it's an appointment that he is determined to make on time. At this time where Jesus was, he's probably about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. So if you wanted to kind of fix that in our context... It'd be the equivalent of Jesus' journey in south to Jerusalem would be like if you just left this building today and just walked straight south to Corsicana, Texas. Or if you wanted to go southwest, it'd be just walking straight over to Weatherford. That's the distance that Jesus has to go over the next 6 to 12 months or so to reach Jerusalem. And the most direct route from where he is down to Jerusalem was through the land of Samaria. So notice what Jesus does in verse 52. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But you'll see in verse 53, the Samaritans didn't want him because they found out and knew that he was going to end up in Jerusalem. Now, I'm sure many of us, from various experiences, have an understanding of rivalry. You can think about, particularly in our culture, some of the most heated rivalries, especially if you get out of the political arena, are often found in the sports arena. Rivalries that have spanned generations and decades, no matter the sport. My own sport going on right now at the World Cup, it's the United States rivalry with Mexico. In baseball, it might be the Yankees and the Red Sox. College football, of course, has no shortage of blood-earnest rivalries. You can think of Texas and OU. You can think of Ohio State and the University of Michigan. But what you need to know is that kind of athletic animosity pales in comparison to the rivalry between a Samaritan and a Jew in the first century. It's a rivalry that goes back almost a millennia to when Jesus, I'm sorry, when uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, 
he came and divided the kingdom into the north, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the Samaritans eventually uh, came about as in 722 B.C., Assyria overthrew the northern kingdom and the Jews in the north intermarried with the Assyrians. And so what you had at that time, of course, was the northern capital was in Samaria, the southern Jews, their capital was in Jerusalem. And at the time of this intermarrying with the northern Jews and the Assyrians, the southern Jews kind of lifted up their minds and said, hey, those are the half-breeds, was the most common way they talked about Samaritans. They're religious apostates. We in the south are the ones that have the pure blood. And so over the next nine centuries or so, Samaritans and Jews set up rival temples. They had rival liturgies. They had rival editions of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So by the time that Jesus shows up, a Samaritan doesn't want anything to do with a teacher who's on his way to Jerusalem. So they reject him outright, don't they? I wonder if it's possible that you might even sit in here this morning and are rejecting Jesus because you don't want to go where he's going? Could you even be rejecting Jesus because you can't see fit to agree with the purpose for which he came, the destination where he is eventually going to land? And we know from the other Gospels that earlier in his ministry, Jesus took these two brothers who were among his 12 disciples, James and John, and because of their zeal, he had nicknamed them the sons of thunder. And it seems like they're trying to live up to their divine given nickname. For notice verse 44, when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, kids, I wonder if you can recall a prophet in the Old Testament who often called down fire from heaven. Now, if you are thinking of the prophet Elijah, you have the right prophet in mind here for what James and John are thinking about. You might go home later today and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. This famous scene, Elijah prays down fire from heaven that consumes the sacrifice on the altar and overthrows and defeats the, the priests of Baal. But probably more uniquely in their mind is a scene that you could also read later on today in 2 Kings chapter 1 where the evil king Ahaziah is sending two companies of soldiers to go get Elijah to come and, and talk with the king. And so a first company of 50 soldiers goes to Elijah, and Elijah, knowing their intent and in judgment upon their wickedness, he calls down from fire, and 50 men are incinerated right before him. And another 50 soldiers are sent by Ahaziah, and the exact same thing happens. Fire falls from heaven, and they are turned into dust and ashes before the feet of this fiery prophet Elijah. And it seems as though, in their zeal to defend the honor of Christ, James and John are channeling uh, their inner Elijah, wanting to destroy this Samaritan village. And how often it's true, isn't it, that when we are rejected, the first impulse is to fight back with destruction, with vehement judgment, but you might need to notice is at the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry in Luke chapter 4, he's rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. And now as he begins his final journey towards Jerusalem in chapter 9, at the outset he's rejected in Samaria. Maybe you've noticed in your reading of Luke's gospel or even the Bible as a whole how rejection was Jesus' most regular reality. And how did he tend to deal with it? Uh, what we, of course, see is an abundance, overflowing patience, mercy, kindness, and grace toward those who do not receive him. 
For notice what even Jesus says to the brothers in verse 55, or does. He turned and rebuked them. Now, if you skip your eyes up to verse 42 of Luke chapter 9, you'll see the last time we saw Jesus rebuke something or someone. And do you see what it was he was rebuking there in verse 42? It was a demon. You see how strong of a rebuke was needed for the disciples' zeal without knowledge? their earnest desire to destroy the Samaritans, Jesus rebukes them just as he had rebuked the demon not too long before. It's why even you might find, if you have an NIV Bible in front of you, they have a footnote probably in it that speaks to a textual variant. This other statement from Jesus we'll find in biblical manuscripts at this point where he turns to John and he turns to James and he says, you do not know the spirit that is in you. The Son of Man came not to destroy men, but to save them. So far gone are they into their desire for revenge, into their desire for retribution, that Jesus says, this is not the time. You might even remember when he set out in his ministry, he proclaimed the year of Jubilee was coming, that this is now the time of redemption. The day of vengeance will come when he returns the second time. That will be the time for retribution. But now is the time for salvation. The disciples have totally missed it in their earnest desire to be vindicated as right and good. And so I wonder what kind of a spirit tends to mark you when you find rejection for your Christian beliefs or for your devotion to Jesus Christ? Is it like the, thun- the sons of thunder, you know, biting, quick to rush to judgment, eager to destroy a reputation or a name? Maybe sometimes even there's this pining, just give us the good old time religion of Elijah that stands against God's enemies, and then all will be okay? Or is it the patient, willful, humble submission to rejection at the world's hands in order to show and to model the persevering grace of Jesus Christ? The road that Jesus follows is the road that is going to lead to his atoning sacrifice in Jerusalem. And as now he and his disciples get back on the road again, we want to see the requirements for Jesus' followers in the remainder of the text. For notice who comes along in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Earnestly saying, Jesus, just tell me where to go and I'm going to go too. But Jesus quickly responds, notice in verse 58, by saying, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And in ways that is pretty true still in the 21st century, at this first century moment in the Jewish culture, foxes and birds were animals that no person cared about. Yet they still have, Jesus says, places where they can rest. They still have homes. It seems as though Jesus is seen through this first man coming to him, and he is thinking that this man believes that following Jesus is going to lead to some kind of comfort and security and prestige. When Jesus is wanting to correct that misguided notion by saying, no, well, foxes and birds might have a home, but I don't even have a pillow on which to lay my head. So in the ensuing discussions that we see in the remainder of this text, what we find are the demands of discipleship once again. And this first conversation says that discipleship means following Jesus into discomfort. How many people, even at this time, when they had heard that the Lord's anointed one had finally arrived, The Messiah that we've been waiting for for ages is finally here, and his name is Jesus. Surely let's get on his bandwagon. Let's follow his train into comfort, into security. And Jesus is trying to overthrow that. 
trying to correct their misguided notions that following him is just going to bring comfort and security in this world. And in reality, and church history bears it out over and over, doesn't it? More often than not, for God's people, following Jesus, being a disciple, does mean some type of journey into discomfort. And then the second thing that we find out about discipleship is that it means following Jesus without delay. For notice verse 59. Jesus now says to another man, follow me. And this man says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And what you need to know is that this was an entirely reasonable request in the Jewish culture. Uh, One scholar would even say that at this time in Jewish piety, burying one's parent was the paramount deed of mercy. It was tantamount to the ultimate obedience of the fifth commandment, honoring one's father and mother. Before a Jew was to do anything else, if their parent was dead, they were to bury them. And that was a way of showing care and respect and appreciation for the parent. It's a very reasonable request, rooted, it seems, in the law of Moses. In the last few months, I've been serving as a grader for a class at the seminary where I just graduated from. It's a class that has about 90 students in this Master of Divinity course. And so there's three of us graders who grade about 30 students over the course of the semester. And the way it's designed, or was designed, is that the professor kind of backloaded all of the assignments. In that one project was worth 75% of the entire final grade. And so I kind of expected as we lurched forward to the deadline for the submission of this final project that we would start to get emails pleading for more time. And sure enough, 48 hours before, the professor and I got an email from a student saying I needed an extension. My relative has been in this car accident and I need to go give urgent attention and care to my uncle. And so the professor and I, of course, emailed back and forth and I just said, hey, do whatever, I'll do whatever you want me to do with the student. And understandably so, and I think rightly so, he said, hey, we'll give you another 10 days in order to submit uh, the project. It was an entirely reasonable request. And this man, at this moment in the first century that Jesus talks to in our passage, makes an entirely reasonable request. Let me bury my father. But do you see what Jesus says? Verse 60, leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's a play on words. Let the spiritually dead take care of the physically dead. But as for you, follow me. You see, Jesus isn't like the parent who counts one, two, three, four, five, before actually demanding obedience from his people. He demands it without delay, doesn't he? And you can see with this man, sometimes even in our life in Christ, we can take a good thing and pursue it to such an extent that we have forgotten who is the best thing that we relegate Jesus even to second place in our affections and attention. And I hope that you know that Jesus Christ is never satisfied with second place in the life of any of his disciples. So discipleship means following Jesus often into discomfort. It means following Jesus without delay. And thirdly, what we see, it means following Jesus without distraction. For notice verse 61. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And again, you need to think that something about Elijah, that great prophet of old, and his great ministry to the Jewish nation is in the background of this request. Because you might recall a time in Elijah's ministry where he called his successor Elisha. 
said, Elisha, essentially, come follow me. And do you remember what Elisha's first response was? Well, let me go say bye to my, far- my parents first. And you know what Elijah did? He said, yeah, go say bye to mom and dad and come follow after me. So it seems as though this third man is standing on some type of prophetic precedence. Just as Elijah was okay with it, surely this rabbi is going to be okay with it. But is he? Look at verse 61. I'm sorry, 62. No one, Jesus says, who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, children, have you ever plowed a field before? I doubt you have, right? In our context today, surely you haven't plowed a field full of rocky soil as people would have plowed at this time in Israel. And I hope we all notice the simple illustration that Jesus is making. And it is impossible to put one hand on the plow and drive a straight line forward because the tense is continual here while continually looking back. You just can't do it. It'd be the same thing if, and don't do this, that you leave the parking lot, of course, and try to drive out by looking backwards through the rear view window the entire time. You can't go forward in Christ while always looking backwards to even sometimes things that are noble and intent. And I imagine in a room of this size, many of you might know this experientially, how you've been called in Christ to move forward in your devotion and diligence. And yet what you find is with each passing week, you just keep looking back. Looking back to past relationships that have fallen apart past affliction and hardship and difficulty. Of course, it could be on the total other end of the spectrum, looking back to the days when it was joyful, when life was great, when happiness was full, all the while never able to move forward in your discipleship with Jesus Christ. So he's laying out, isn't he, with like hammer blow efficiency. This is what it means to be one of my disciples. He isn't saying this is how you become one of my disciples, but I have called you and I have chosen you and I have appointed you to be my people. Now follow me into discomfort without delay or distraction. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what you need to know is what Jesus has just brought to the forefront is something that's going to show up in Luke chapter 14. So if you stick with us, Lord willing, for a few months, we're eventually going to get to Luke chapter 14 and this great parable of the wedding feast. And it's this parable of the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, inviting people to come dine with him, to be with him for all eternity. And he says there are three reasons why people will not come to be with me. And there are reasons reflected in our text. He says there are reasons in that parable of property, of family, and of work. Perhaps you haven't realized how a close grip on possessions, maybe even children, a close grip on your vocation is preventing you from coming to Jesus Christ in faith. And it isn't even true, maybe if you are a Christian, that a close grip on worldly comfort is preventing you from close communion with Jesus Christ. Do you not know that worldly security so often smothers sacrifice for the King of Kings? The way of Christ is the way of sacrifice, atoning, perfect sacrifice in Jerusalem. And so, not surprisingly, what does he turn around and do? The requirements for his people to follow after him 
is a life marked by devoted sacrifice unto his honor and renown. The way of Christ demands sacrifice. One of the great staunch defenders of Christian orthodoxy in America in the early 20th century was a man named J. Gresham Machen. He was a Princeton seminary professor, then eventually founded Westminster Theological Seminary. He was known for his unflinching and unwavering commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and such unflinching and unwavering commitment overflowed into how he taught in his classes. Because students loved him, but he was well known for how hard he was and how strict he was on his students. He once complained that he was going to fail three quarters of his students from his Pauline epistles class because they were so inept at their understanding of New Testament Greek. And then he bemoaned to the faculty that no one wanted to take his New Testament Greek exegesis elective course because they didn't really care that much about the original language of the New Testament. And so all this is boiling up in Machen, and he eventually cries out in one of his writings, just give me a student who will make modern culture subservient to the gospel. Here we have a Savior presented before us that takes his modern culture, especially in its understanding of the Messiah, and makes it subservient to the Father's eternal decree. Because understand that we've seen this, haven't we, in recent weeks? The disciples are misunderstanding the Messiah's mission. So when they see and they hear Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, they're probably clapping their hands in excitement because finally it's time for Jerusalem to be restored to prominence. And yet, as they are finding out along the way, he is going to Jerusalem to do something they don't expect. And it's because of his devotion to covenant of redemption, the eternal decree that the Son would come to save sinners by giving himself as a perfect sacrifice at the cross of Calvary. And then he thus recalls and calls for his disciples with hammer-like demands and requirements to make modern comfort and security subservient to the gospel. So as we begin to close, I just want to point out two final things, implications of what we have just seen in this passage, the first of which is we must trust Christ's mission for his people. Look back at verse 51 through 53. It's likely that in your English translation, uh, what you see there is in verse 51 and 53, Jesus' face mentioned. In the Greek, it's also mentioned in verse 52. So three verses in a row, the firm fixedness of his face to go to Jerusalem is emphasized. It's summoning to mind what we read earlier in our service, a suffering servant song of Isaiah 50, when the Savior would come and his face would be set forth like a flint in what he has come to do. Now, kids, have you ever seen a statue before? Maybe you can think of Mount Rushmore's Statue of Liberty. A face fixed as rock, because it is rock. And does that face ever move? Does its gaze ever waver? We're meant to know that that kind of fixedness, that kind of determination, is the way in which Jesus was walking to Jerusalem. Why? His mission was to die in the place of sinners. His resolution to go to the cross is your redemption. So you might be in here this morning, and you might not be a Christian, and what you need to know is that the Bible says that you have been born into sin. Your sin deserves God's punishment upon your life. 
that unflinching, unwavering, resolute hammer blows of God's wrath will fall upon you for all eternity if you turn not unto Jesus Christ. But with his face set like a flint, Jesus went to Jerusalem to what? Find hammer blows falling upon him as he was nailed to a cross in your place to take the penalty of sin for anyone and everyone who would turn from their sin and trust in him. Do you see once again his willingness, his readiness, his holy loving desire to go to the cross at Calvary? You must trust Christ's mission for his people. And secondly, you must obey Christ's commission to his people. Because look back at what we skipped over in verse 60. What does he tell this man who comes to him that wants to bury his father? What does he tell him he must do? Of course, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And if you skip down to the verse at the end of our text, verse 62, you'll see Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Devoted followers, devoted disciples of Jesus Christ are men and women, boys and girls, who are committed to Christ's kingdom which Jesus summarizes here as fervent and faithful proclamation of his saving rule. And how many of you know that fervent and faithful proclamation of Jesus Christ can be the, be the most uncomfortable thing in an ordinary week? The easiest thing with which we can delay and distract ourselves into other noble desires, lest we share Christ and proclaim his saving power to those that God has placed around us. So even for us as a church, isn't it a great point of examination and self-assessment? Are we diligently, are we eagerly and zealously going and proclaiming Christ? Are, are we more content to put our fingers in our ears, to stay in our seat and keep our lips closed? So Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is now beginning. Until the middle of chapter 19, he goes with his face set like a flint in order that he might be the sacrifice for sinners like you and me. And do you not know that we too are on a journey towards the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city above, passing our pilgrim days here on earth in devotion to Jesus Christ? A devotion that often looks like following Jesus into discomfort without delay and without distraction. It's a devotion that's often marked by sacrifice for the sake of Christ's glory, honor, and renown. Because the way of Christ, our text tells us, demands sacrifice. Sacrifice of the Savior. That so motivates and empowers us to live a life of faithful, loving sacrifice for His name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus has resolved the problem of sin by giving up his life on the cross. We thank you that he has given us the blessing and the benefit of the Holy Spirit to empower us that we might indeed be radically sacrificial followers of your Son. Father, help us as we want to go and proclaim Christ's kingdom. Help us as we want to trust and obey for we know there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. 
And we do pray all of these things in his name. Amen.